0: Uh, I've got a pastor friend, uh, actually a mentor of mine. His name's Elliot. And uh, Elliot planted a church. And after he planted a church for the next 12 years, uh, he helped plant a whole bunch more churches. And uh, he got really tired. He got so tired they had to take a break. It wasn't really a sabbatical. It was more of uh, just a lack of employment. We'll put it that way. Uh, It wasn't his fault. He wasn't, he got fired. He just stepped back and um, and when he did, he really wanted to think up. Uh, he, he had found lots of people who have lots of energy for ministry, but he hadn't uh, been around, uh, let's just say, many healthy pastors. And so he wanted to create this program to have pastors go through it. And uh, he, he wanted to see if it would work. But he couldn't, after a while, after he came up with the program, he didn't seem to have the gusto to get it off the ground. And it was because he was burnout. He sat down with one of his other friends who was a pastor. and told him about his lack of energy and asked him for his advice and said, what do you think I should do about this? And his pastor friend suggested, he said, hey, I think you should go to counseling. My friend said, no, end of discussion. A couple weeks later, that same pastor went to my friend Elliot and said, "Uh, I know you said you wouldn't go to a counselor, but would you go to a leadership coach? He said, yeah, I'll do that. It's a little trick for you to use later or somebody might use that on you. So he goes to the leadership coach, and since this is a leadership coach, he figures that this is the perfect person for him to show this program that he's come up with to develop pastors. And so he goes to the leadership coach, and he says, I need to tell you something. I don't talk about feelings, but I do want to get your feedback on this program that I've built, but I've not launched for pastors. This program has six subjects. It has uh, spiritual formation, It has family, including singleness and marriage and parenting. It has emotional intelligence. It's got cultural intelligence. It's got leadership. And then it has self-care. Those are the six pillars of the program that I have built to run pastors through. What do you think? The counselor responded. He said, well, from what I know about pastors, I think that'd be great. But I have a question and a thought. My thought is that these pastors are going to have to talk about their feelings if you do this. My question is, how can you practice these six things if you can't talk about your feelings? My friend said that he collapsed into tears and he didn't look up for three days. So he goes home, he gathers the five pastors he knows best, and he said, hey, I know I've come up with this program, but I'm the one who needs it. And you might need it too, so let's do it together. And they did it over the next two years, and he said it really has been the turning point in his whole life. See, this pastor friend of mine, Elliot, he's unbelievably bright. He knows his Bible. He's written books. He's very disciplined. He's very well-mannered. His behavior is exemplary. But there was a major gap for him at this juncture in his life. And it was that he didn't know how his emotions fit into his life. Does that sound like you this morning? See, the Bible acknowledges human emotion all over the place. You see Jesus, you see him angry and sad and disappointed and fearful and happy. Then you get to the Psalms, one of the bigger books in the Bible, 150 of them actually, and you see the whole entire palette of human emotion in that book. In fact, one pastor was asked by someone who was unfamiliar with the Bible where to start reading it, and he said, I would read the Psalms. He said, I would read it because it has such an acute range of human experience, you'll think it was written by your therapist." So this summer, we will be looking at the Psalms. We'll be doing that some weeks. Other weeks, we're going to be finishing up the Abraham cycle in Genesis. But before we get into the Psalms, we need to start at the beginning of the Psalter, Psalm 1. Because Psalm 1 is fundamental. It's basic to the whole rest of the book. If you miss Psalm 1, you miss the book. If you get Psalm 1, you'll get the rest of the book. So let's read it together. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. But the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous." For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The word of the Lord. Be to God. So you see three movements in this psalm. You got the first two verses are about how to be blessed. The middle two verses are about what happens when you're blessed. And the last two verses are about a motivation to choose blessed living. So let's do the first two, how to be blessed. The first word is right out there it's blessed and it can also be translated happy happy we've got a strange relationship with happiness don't we I mean you start out as children and you think all of life is happy I mean every child I've ever been around the first thing they do when they wake up in the morning is how can I possibly be as happy as possible today children think it's natural to be happy But as you grow older, you find out that happiness is not as easy as you once thought. You begin to believe that pain is the common human plight, and it is. You begin to think maybe all of life is pain, and you become a cynic. So either you think happiness is all of life, or you think it's none of life. But the Bible says that happiness is neither natural nor is it impossible. The Bible says that happiness or blessedness is achievable. So we shouldn't be naive about the pain of the world, but we shouldn't have so bleak of an outlet that happiness does not fit into our worldview. But if happiness is possible, why do so, people, so few people have it? Well, I think the reason is that it's so rare is because few have heeded these two, first two verses. These first two verses are about our inputs, the thing we put in our lives, the things that we put in our lives or we don't let in our lives is what determines the blessed state that we're in. Now I'm going to call them Inputs. And it starts out, the psalmist does, by saying, don't do this. And it says, but do that. The psalmist describes a happy person as one who does not keep poor company. And it keeps away from the bad input, but pursues the good input. The good input being the law of the Lord. But let's look at the poor company first. You see those three verbs in verse 1? Do you see them? Starts with walk grows into stand, and then progresses all the way to sit. It's a progression. At first, the wicked person just walks through poor company. Then the wicked person pauses in poor company by standing. And then lastly, the wicked person chooses a settled state of sitting. And that's instructive for us, isn't it? It tells us that becoming wicked is not something that happens overnight. It's a process, and it's a process that involves who we spend our time with. See, look at Jesus. Think about the people in his earthly ministry, the last three years of his life. We don't know much about the first 30, but the last three we know a lot. We've got the four Gospels to tell us what his days, day in and day out, look like. And we see that he spends the majority of his time with the disciples. If you've read the Gospel, you know that the disciples could be described as blockheads, Right? I mean, they're kind of thick headed at times. They're dunces, perhaps, and that's using kind words. Jesus used tougher words for them at times than those. But they were people who had made a big commitment to him, right? I and mean, they had left everything to follow him. But they weren't the only people he spent time with. It's not like it was just a 12, it's not like 12 people and Jesus were in the classroom all day, every day together. No, they, they interacted with all kinds of people, and some of the people that that they, that Jesus spent time with, we would qualify as bad influences. They're not necessarily people that you would hope that your kids would grow up and hang out with. They're seedy people. They're people who are unrighteous, we would say. But then there were other bad influences that were just kind of these self-righteous stick-in-the-muds. How did Jesus interact with them? He, He wasn't afraid of them. He engaged them. He didn't avoid them. See, what Jesus knew is that his holiness was contagious to those who were hungry for it. That's why he hung out with the disciples. But he also knew that if he got into a sitting posture with people who were hostile toward him, they would have a negative impact on his character. So you put Psalm 1 together with the life of Jesus, and I think you can deduce something. I think you can deduce that those closest to us, our spouse, our closest friends, they ought to be people who delight in Jesus. But we've got to leave a lot of room in our lives to interact with those who have not placed their faith in Jesus. But the psalmist moves from what we should elude as an input, the wicked people, and begins to show us what we should pursue as an input. And do you see what it is in verse 2? What the psalmist says that we should pursue is the law of the Lord. What does that phrase conjure up for you? I mean, if you've been in the church a long time or not, law of the Lord. I mean, when we think of the law, we think of regulations, legal kinds of things, right? And that is how this phrase is used in the Scripture at times. At other times, when it talks about the law of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's talking about the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, some of that is legal code, but a lot of those first five books are narrative, like we've been looking at with Genesis But then there's the third use. And the third use of this term, the law of the Lord, is the message of the Bible. That's what it stands for. That's what it refers to. And so what is the message of the Bible? How how can you summarize the message of the Bible? Well, I think you can summarize it with one word, and it's grace. So when it says delight on the law of the Lord, it's saying that you should delight in the grace of the Lord. And the whole story is grace. I mean, it all starts out and God creates the heavens and the earth, not because he was lonely, not because he needed company. He, he created all things out of the joy that he had within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so he wanted to share that joy with all that he had made. That's grace. But as we know, on the last day creates Adam and Eve, who are his image bearers and he tells, gives them uh, how they're supposed to live, and he says, don't eat from this tree. They do. And because God's holy, he's got to punish their sin. But even in the midst of his punishment, he gives them a promise that one day all things would be made right again. What is that? Grace. Then you got the rest of the Old Testament, and even when God's people wonder from him, even when they're acting a fool like we've seen with Abraham, God remains faithful. That's Grace. Then you get to the New Testament, you see God incarnate in the person of Jesus who not just tolerated sinners, but he loved them in his public ministry. Grace. And ultimately, this gracious life that Jesus lives, that gets him killed and his death was a sacrifice for sinners. Grace. Then he raises from the dead, he ascends to heaven, and he gives his people his spirit, and they begin to proclaim the gospel to all peoples grace. So when the Bible talks about meditating on the law of the Lord, it's not talking about meditating on rules as much as it's saying that we should meditate on grace. And it says that that this the law of the Lord or grace is not something first and foremost that you learn or that you do, but it's something that you delight in. Verse two, grace is delicious It's what you want. It's what you need. It's what you have to have to live on is grace. And it's found in the pages of the scriptures. And then we're told in verse two that the blessed person meditates on the law of the Lord, meditates on grace day and night. What does it look like to meditate on grace day and night? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have your Bible open in your lap all day. Now the Bible's key to this. It's where grace is found. But I think it, Means so much more that grace is found in Jesus and and, and becoming the orienting person in your life. That the gospel becomes the centerpiece out of which every aspect of your life is organized. Grace becomes the filter for the way you think and live, and guess what else? The way you feel. And that's the key for the Psalms. That's why it's right here in Psalm 1 that all your emotions are flowing out of meditating on the law of the Lord. But like I said, what's your relationship with your emotions? I think for most of us, we fall in one of two camps. One, we, we're, we have a stoic view of our emotions or we have a sacred view of our emotions. If you have a stoic view, then you seek to suppress your feelings, your feelings feelings are unwelcomed and you likely think that your feelings get in the way of you rationally doing life. So you underemphasize them. But there's another way to view your feelings and it's to make them sacred. And this view that all venting of your emotions is not just seen as a good thing, but it's a necessary thing for a full life. Give a sacred view of your feelings, then you become, then your feelings become the basis of your reality. Your feelings, they cannot be critiqued if they're sacred. But the Bible says something different. The Bible says that feelings can be good or bad. And whether they're good or bad depends on your inputs. See, for instance, not all anger is good. Some of it is, some of it is but not all of it is. Some of it can be destructive. But if it springs from a person who delights in the grace of the gospel it has more of a chance to be something that's good. And that's why the gospel becomes absolutely critical to your emotional life. So if you want to be happy, according to verses one and two, you've got to neglect ungodly company and you've got to make the gospel the foundation of your life. That's how you become happy. But what does this happiness look like? Well, look at verses three and four. Verses three and four, you get two images. One is of a tree and the other is of chaff. And the tree, see how it's described? It's described as bearing fruit in season. It's described as having leaves that never wither. It's described as prospering in all things. But there's a secret to the tree's success. Do you see it in in that verse? Do you see it in verse 3? The secret to the tree's success is what? It's the water. It's the water source. There's this... In a tree, there's this unseen root system that's drawing nourishment from a stream, and that's what makes the tree so healthy. This unseen root system with an ever-present source of nourishment is what allows the tree to be durable and consistent and sturdy. But do you see the other image? Verse 4. Well, you see what it is? It's chaff. I, I, I grew up in the suburbs. Now I live, I guess, more urban environment, I guess some would say. So I don't know much about chaff. Here's what I found out. Chaff is, they're husks of corn. They're light. They're thin. They're worthless. They're, any amount of wind is going to blow them across the surface. And so then you compare and contrast the chaff and the tree, and you see there's a starkness. Don't you see it? Because if you're like the chaff, then you're letting your circumstances dictate your feelings, and if the and if the winds of your circumstances blow, you let your feelings blow, blow right along with your circumstances. But if you're like the tree, you know where your feelings should be placed. You know there's different seasons. You know there's going to be a fruitful season. You know there's going to be a winter. You don't expect 12 months a year to be fruitful. You don't expect to have pleasant circumstances all the time. But you also don't expect to have 12 months of winter. You don't expect to have 12 months of difficult circumstances. So when you see yourself as a tree, it gives you stability because you know that what matters is unseen. What matters is the water. And if you stay near the waters of the gospel, you can see your life for what it really is. See, that's what happens when you're blessed. That's what your life looks like with those inputs. Maybe you need some motivation to choose happiness. Maybe you need a motivation to choose this blessed life. You see it in verses 5 and 6. The language is unambiguous throughout the whole psalm, isn't it? I mean, verses 1 and 2, you can be happy, you can be blessed, or you can be wicked. Verses 3 and 4, you can be a tree or you can be like the chaff. Verses 5 and 6, you can be wicked or you can be righteous. It's really sharp, this whole psalm is. There's no neutral ground. There's no middle ground. The choice is pretty dire because it involves divine judgment or Divine blessing. How's that land on you? (laughs) The starkness, this no middle ground, this lack of neutrality. Now, if it sounds harsh, it could be if you didn't grasp that this is not what God wants for you. He doesn't want judgment for you. He tells you what he wants for you in this passage. Do you see all these things? God wants you to be happy. I know some people say, God, does God really care about our happiness? And I understand the critique of that question. But that's what this, ter- this term means. Blessedness is happiness. And God wants you to be happy. Now, not happy compared to what the world says happiness is, but according to what he says it is. But he wants you to be happy. He wants you to be stable and mature like this tree that's by streams of water. God so badly wants you to, to be like this tree, he so badly wants you to be happy that he's revealed himself to you in Jesus in the Scriptures and in that, the scriptures can be to the light of your soul. He wants you to delight in those. And then towards the end, he wants you to know his care. He wants to keep you. But maybe you can know all these things, the goodness of God, and you're still a little scared, still a little tentative. Even if you take God's grace into account, Maybe you just need to ask the question, why? Why are you still scared? Why are you still hesitant? Well, it might be that the future judgment is sneaking backward into your life today to lead you to repentance. Maybe what's happened is life has gotten just a little bit harder than normal for you lately. And what God is trying to do is get your attention. He wants you to see that there's a better way to live your life than on the roller coaster of your circumstances and your feeling. He wants you to live in such a way that, is, 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 that you very much proceed out of his resources and not your own. You see, here's what's going on in your life if you're a Christian. You have a Lamborghini engine underneath the hood of your life. I've been watching comedians and cars getting coffee with Jerry Seinfeld. Any, any, any fans of that? I don't know jack about cars. I mean, nothing. I know how to put gas in my car. That's about it. But what I've noticed in watching this show is the difference in some of these engines. Now, some of the cars, if you've seen them, are just kind of uh, odd. I mean, old and just strange looking cars. I, I mean, I find them really not strange and, uh, and interesting in a bad kind of way. I think they're awesome. But then some of them are, 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 have tons of power. The engines are so much bigger. And the Lamborghini's engine is, like, is, is unbelievably enormous. And if you have one of those, you have one of those under the, under the hood of your life. But here's what most of us are doing. Most of us, were acting like Fred Flintstone. We're putting our feet on the ground. We're trying to power our life on our own, being Fred Flintstone when we have a Lamborghini engine sitting right there. See, we've got all the right doctrine. We don't have any fire. We don't have any life. And it, and it only renders us open to judgment on the final day. See, this fire, this life, this energy, this power, it comes only to a life that's wholeheartedly yielded to the Spirit. Yielded to the Spirit that wants to get, get you out of poor company and wants to get you in delighting in the law of the Lord. And the Spirit's the one who's going to get you out of the scoffer's seat. The Spirit's the one who's going to help you delight in the law of the Lord. He's the one who's going to supply this underground water supply. He's the one who's going to cause your days to be prosperous and fruitful. So will you open yourself up this morning? (laughs) Will you open yourself up this summer as we talk about the Psalms? See, closed vents can't be cleaned. Full cups cannot be filled. What the Spirit wants to do is He wants to make you a new person. He wants to make you a new person from the inside out. He wants to change what you delight in. See, what the Spirit wants to do, the, the Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. He wants to put Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, in the foreground of your life. He, he wants you to see Jesus more clearly than ever. He wants you to see that Jesus is the one who loves you, who's committed to you to the end, who's with you in all the trials of your life, who will not and indeed cannot reject you because you were born into his family. See, this is all grace. And the way that we enjoy it over our feelings and over our circumstances by drawing on the good news of the gospel, will you join me in this this summer? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these images uh, that bring this passage to life. Oh, Lord, would you uh, help us be people uh, who, um, who know how to deal uh, with people, uh, the Lord, that we know when they're having an influence on us or when we're having an influence on them. Would you give us that kind of wisdom? Lord, would you help us delight in your law? Lord, would you uh, help us uh, question our feelings? Would you help us to see that happiness is possible? Oh, Lord, make us a people who delight in your law. We pray these things in your name. Amen.